Would you join me just in a quick word of prayer here? Lord, we, we need your help. Um, sometimes your word is, is difficult, it's complex, it's confusing. Sometimes there are things in uh, passages of Scripture that we scratch our heads over, and Lord, we have come to one of those today. There's a number of things here, Lord, that just seem to be strange to us. And so, Lord, I ask that as we come to your word, that you would give us a sense of understanding of the big picture of what it is you seek to communicate to us. And Lord, as we wrestle with this text, would you give us wisdom and insight and clarification, Lord? And Lord, I ask as your messenger that you would use me as your mouthpiece. Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? What we are not, Lord, would you make us? In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. Philip Henry, who was the father of the 18th century commentator and pastor, Matthew Henry, once said this, He is no fool who parts with what, that which he cannot keep when he is sure to be recompensed with that which he cannot lose. About 300 years later, a young missionary uh, by the name of Jim Elliott would paraphrase those words in his journal as he prepared to actually take the gospel with his friends to the Aqua Indians deep in the Ecuadorian jungle. And here's what he would say. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If that is the first time you've heard this statement, I would encourage you to write it down and put it in your Bible. It's very, very profound. Now, with those words, Jim Elliott was announcing his resolve to surrender himself to the mission that God had called him to. No matter the cost, knowing that there may be a cost, however great it might be, he was willing to serve God, and that cost was outweighed by the rewards of serving God. As I'm sure you all know, this is a very, very famous situation in our Christian history. Uh, Jim Elliott and his friends went to those Aqua Indians, and as soon as they met them face to face, they were speared to death. They paid the price for doing what God had called them to do. Now, such a statement is certainly for those who are in service for the Lord as pastors and missionaries, but it's no less true for all of us who are God's children. It's a principle of surrender to the call and the commands of Christ. It reflects the surrender uh, to the Lordship of Christ. It should be the governing principle of every life that bows before Jesus as Savior and Lord. And it's nothing other than complete, wholehearted, and absolute surrender to the rule and to the reign of Christ over your life. So this is true for us, and this, in this text, we'll see, is also true for Moses. When Moses encountered God, the I Am at the burning bush, this is where God called him to serve him as his deliverer for Israel. And Moses took his time in embracing the call, if you remember. Moses parried the call. He, he sought to avoid the call. He, he asked questions. He had concerns. He ex expressed his inadequacies. He even said, please send someone else. 
And of course, we know from that passage that the anger of the Lord was kindled. But not only that, God was assuring Moses that he had already been at work to raise Aaron, his brother, so that he would be Moses' mouthpiece and would be able to speak for Moses. And Moses would be God to Aaron. Something happened in this encounter when God's anger was kindled that changed Moses' heart. Now in this text, we see Moses surrendered to God's call. And we're inundated by the repetition of a word or a set of words that tells us what Moses is about to do. Look, if you would, please, in verse 18. There we find this expression, go back, go in peace. Then in verse 19, go back. In verse 20, went back. In verse 21, go back. So what we have in this text is an account of Moses' return from Midian to Egypt. And the text falls neatly into three sections. The first section would be Moses leaving Midian. The second section would be Moses in the wilderness on his journey. And then finally, we see Moses actually getting to Egypt and doing ministry there with Aaron. And along the way here, he submits himself to God's call, and he will face, in that call, some challenges. And this morning, I would like for us to consider this passage in light of this theme. Three challenges facing the servant of God who was fully surrendered to his will. Three challenges facing the servant of God who's fully surrendered to his will. Friends, once God has called us to run the race, our job is not simply to celebrate by standing at the line and having our name called, just kind of waving as the announcer calls our name. No, our our job is certainly to rejoice in the salvation that we have because of Christ, but that salvation is the beginning of something. And God is calling us to surrender to his lordship and to live our lives in such a way that we would be under his direction, under his guidance, under his call for the pursuit of being like Christ. And so we rejoice in our salvation always and at every moment, but we must not stay there. We must press on in our sanctification and our service for Christ. So let's look for at the first challenge that Moses is facing what I'm calling the challenge of true commitment. And in this section, we'll we'll see Moses and his need to respond to four obstacles that confront his commitment. The first obstacle I'm calling responsibility. Because he needs to talk with Jethro. He's got this call. Now he needs to go back and he needs to talk with Jethro. Now notice what it says here. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now friends, there's an important principle here. Moses is an example of a Christian who is seeking to follow Christ and love their family at the same time. Our commitment is to Christ first. It must always come first. Jesus says in the book of Luke the following words, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brother, brothers and sisters, 
Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, certainly he's not talking about hatred toward them in the sense that we understand it. What he's talking about there is that you're so devoted to the cause of Christ that that cause is a priority over family. He's saying that your commitment to Christ is true. It's total. God demands an absolute allegiance that sometimes conflicts with family expectations. Moses is committed to his God first, but he doesn't uh, he doesn't you know, forget about Jethro. He doesn't neglect his responsibility. He isn't disrespectful to his family. And in Jethro's case, he's not just his father-in-law, he's also his employer. But what, what had happened was when, when Moses came to Midian, if you remember, Jethro welcomed him, gave him his daughter, Zipporah, to marry, and then he served Jethro in the tending and care of his flock. And so there was this this great responsibility that, that Moses had to go back to Jethro and to explain to him what was going on. Now, friends, being committed to God doesn't mean that we have the right to be disrespectful to others. In other words, I'm going to do what God's going to call me to do, and I don't care what you think. Well, that's not the greatest attitude. Being submissive to Christ and carrying that responsibility of of that commitment that you have means that you will treat others with respect, means that you will be diligent to talk with them. So for example, if you're serving in an area of ministry and for some reason you believe that God is calling you out of that area of ministry and into another area of ministry, it's only right that you go talk to the person who has been your overseer in that area of ministry that you're moving out of and you explain to them, this is what I think God is doing. Here's how I think I need to move so that you can interact with them and you can get their blessing, you can get their guidance. And friends, when you do that, there's a smooth exit, there's a strategy for the person uh, who, who knows that you're leaving, and then there's the blessing of that person on your life to serve the Lord in that capacity. Now, one of the, the signs of immaturity that, immaturity that I have experienced through the years serving the Lord as pastor is that people will often leave a church that they have served in, that they've had responsibilities in, that they've received much support and benefit from, and they don't say anything. There's no email, there's no phone call, there's no conversation or meeting with the elders, there's not a word, they just disappear. Not only is that immature, but it's also extremely disrespectful. And quite frankly, often it's downright sinful. Do you think that the conversation Moses needed to have with Jethro was going to be an easy one? Hey, Jethro, let's talk. I just want to let you know, I'm taking your daughter, I'm taking your grandsons, and I'm going back to Egypt, and you will never see us again. That's not an easy conversation to have with a father-in-law, with a grandfather, with someone who's been a part of your life for 40 years. It was a difficult conversation but it was a necessary conversation. And how does Jethro respond? Notice this. He sends Moses away with his blessing, doesn't he? Go in peace. Friends, it's so much better to face the struggle in your submission to the Lord than it is to avoid it. And when you avoid it, you act sinfully and you always have this dark cloud over you because you weren't willing to do the hard thing. 
Yes, in Moses' situation, Jethro is supportive, but I understand that isn't always the case. But regardless, we must do the hard things in order to get a chance to do the right things. So friends, this is the first obstacle. Being surrendered to the Lord means that you are going to have to be committed to Him, and there are going to be obstacles that you're going to face that are going to challenge that commitment. Moses' first obstacle was the obstacle of responsibility. Secondly, Moses' next obstacle, I'm calling an obstacle of temperament. He needs to follow God's timetable. Notice what it says here. It's kind of strange how it fits into this passage. Verse 19, And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Now this verse might seem to hit us a little bit as God or the the text of Scripture being redundant. Hasn't God already told Moses to go many times? Yes, he has. Yet even though Moses is now surrendered to God's plan, there is always a struggle in him to act on that plan in a timely fashion. His obedience may be coming in fits and starts. It's on again, it's off again. He's saying, you know, God's called me to this and I'm going to be going to do this, but he's in a sense dragging his feet. There's a sense in which God is coming in and speaking to that. And it needs to be said that conversion and commitment doesn't normally alter one's temperament. Yes, a radical change has taken place in the heart of a person who is now a believer. They see life differently, but God has created you and wired you in certain ways, and each of us have different kinds of temperament. So an introvert will likely remain an introvert. A logical thinker will likely still think logically. A person who tends to have great feeling and passion will likely still feel things deeply. That's not a bad thing. That's a temperament thing. And certainly our temperaments come with both strengths and weaknesses, and we will need to constantly care for our temperaments, the sin that, that might come out of our temperaments. We know our strengths. We know our struggles. And this is what happens with Moses. Moses tends to be a worrisome, insecure kind of person. And he would likely continue to struggle while under God's will. So if you have this thinking that, you know, with with salvation, you know, everything's changed in the sense of of now you're just this perfect person, You're, you're missing the boat. You bring all sorts of habits and thoughts and behaviors into your walk with Christ. And one of those things is your temperament. So it would appear that God speaks to Moses to prompt him or to prod him against the unnecessary delay. Maybe Moses is still wondering, are those people who were seeking my life still alive? Will they come to chase me down? And God comforts him now to say, listen, go. You may be dragging your feet, but go. So friends, it's one thing to get your affairs in order, but it's another thing to drag your feet. And if we just look at this text through the lens of formal ministry, in other words, talking about pastoral ministry or being a missionary, or serving in the church in some capacity, we might miss some helpful application. God's calling isn't always for ministry service, but for Christian responsibilities that we all have because we're growing in our sanctification. Let me give you a couple of examples. 
If we offend someone, we have a responsibility to go ask for forgiveness. And we need to do it in a timely fashion. If we have conflict with someone, we need to be quick to resolve it biblically, seeking the Lord's help because we know that it is the right thing to do. But because of our temperament sometimes, we, we drag our feet, we, we slow things down. So friends, be careful that the circumstances of life don't become obstacles that drag your feet from serving the Lord in a timely fashion. And friends, when you surrender to the Lord, you will still have the obstacle of your temperament to deal with. And you need to pray and ask God for wisdom and to tackle some specific areas of weakness that you may have. The third obstacle that we find here in this passage is the obstacle of family. Yes, God has called Moses to go be his deliverer, but what we find here is that God's call to Moses is also God's call to Zipporah and to his two sons. Look what it says here in verse 20. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. Now, friends, that's no small thing. It's no small thing to take your family and uproot them and now go on a journey that seems to be a difficult journey, a challenging journey. But understand this, they are a family, and although God's call rests upon Moses, the head of the household, it is a call that impacts the whole family. They're all involved. And friends, the cost of discipleship is not some abstract thing. It is real and practical, and at times it can be painful. And I remember when God was drawing my heart here to California. I was in Michigan at the time, and God was working in some certain ways, and I had to have a conversation with my wife, Elia. And it wasn't an easy conversation because this was new. This kind of would shock her world. And then as we settled in on what God was doing to, to transition us here to California, and we saw that this was something that God actually may be opening the door for, we had to sit down and talk with our children. We had to uproot our children and bring them here to California. And certainly that meant that they were leaving their friends, leaving their schools, leaving their church. And in many ways, it was an extremely difficult transition. There was lots of tears, and yet we, we knew that God was in this, and so we were able to press on. The point here is this, that surrendering to God's call doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be an easy walk for everyone. And if you're committed to following Christ, one of the challenges is to serve Christ with that commitment and carry your family with you. And so husbands, dads, fathers, hear this. If you're committed to following Christ, that means you're committed to carrying your family through with you. And you need to be in prayer about that. That's going to be an obstacle to your commitment. And Moses is facing that obstacle. And we, we see him taking his family with him to face whatever adversities are ahead. They're in this together. Now, the last obstacle that we find here, I'm calling the obstacle of success. And we're going to spend a little bit of time here because I think there's a lot of things that God is revealing here to Moses that are going to be helpful not only to him, but also to us as we think through them. Having been commissioned in Egypt and settled in his responsibilities, now 
he travels with his family back to Egypt. And we, I want you to notice two things. First of all, he has the staff of God in his hand. Did you notice that there? If you remember earlier in the chapter, Moses' staff is the staff of Moses that God uses to show uh, Moses his first sign, and that is the staff turning into a serpent. And then in verse 17 of chapter 4, he says, And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. And this theme of the staff runs through uh, the book of Exodus. This is the tool that God is going to use. Now, as Moses is finally surrendered to God's will, the staff of Moses has become the staff of God. You see that? What, what Moses was using personally now has been, become the tool that God is going to use for his glory. And friends, I think one of the things that we note here is this, that this is evidence of the change that has taken place in the heart of Moses. He is now God's man for God's task and is heading into his mission. We see him resolute to do God's will. And friends, it's an epic movie moment in the story, isn't it? Moses has finally listened to and trusted God, the I am who I am. He's taking care of his responsibilities and he's heading out to serve the Lord. You can see his hair and his beard blowing in the wilderness wind. You can see there's dirt and sweat on his face. There's upbeat music playing in the background. All the creatures and animals of the wilderness are popping out of holes and looking around bushes. There's Moses and he's going to serve the Lord. Midian is behind him. His family is with him. Egypt is in front of him. And the staff of God is in his hand. This is going to be a great story. And what we're expecting next is for Moses to show up in Egypt, to speak God's word and to perform these signs. And the children of, of Israel will walk out of Egypt with treasures to worship God in the wilderness. But what we find is that Moses is given some additional instructions, some new instructions, instructions that, in a sense, complete some of the ideas that God had given him. So here we have now the Word of God, and with this Word, there is a warning. God's told Moses that uh, he would be compelled by his mighty hand, and the wonders uh, that God would do would eventually result in the king of Egypt letting God's people go. But there is more to the story. And now God fills in some of the details for Moses. Look at verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. Moses heard that, he understood that. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Well, friends, this is new information. <laughs> I thought you said, I'm going to go and deliver the people, God. Well, you are, and he will let them go, but his heart's going to be hardened, and I'm going to harden his heart. So God reveals to Moses that rather than make a believer out of Moses, the signs would harden him in his unbelief, and in his stubbornness, he would refuse to let God's people go. Friends, it's often in the Bible that we find 
God sending his servants on seemingly impossible tasks in which he promises meager results. Think of Isaiah chapter 6. We love this passage, don't we? It's a wonderful passage of a servant saying, God, I will do whatever it is you want me to do. Here's here's Isaiah having this vision of God, and God says, who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. But we often forget to read on in the story, because here's what it says. Isaiah chapter 6 and verses 9 and 10 say this. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. I mean, seriously, who wants to go and do what Isaiah signed up for? I don't think you would want that. That would be a challenging task, to go and to serve and to minister and not see any fruit. If, in fact, knowing that you wouldn't see any fruit and knowing that you would have rebellion on your hands. That's your task. Who wants to go serve the Lord knowing that you're going to be rejected at every turn? But God's servant went and God's servants still go. God promises that truth will win in the end. And for Christians reading their Bibles, this is nothing new. We're familiar with the fact that when Jesus performed signs and wonders that some believed and were saved, some were just there for the show. But there were others who were not believers. They were not convinced. They not only doubted, they rejected what he was doing, and ultimately they are condemned. In particular, those would be the religious establishment of the day. And in a similar way, Pharaoh's hardness of heart is all part of God's saving plan for his children. It's an important theme in the book of Exodus, and we'll encounter it again and again, especially in the plague chapters of chapter 7 through 12. But this hardness of heart is described in three ways. In Exodus chapter 8, verse 15, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. In Exodus 7, 13, Pharaoh's heart was hardened without specifying who did the hardening. And then, of course, here in our text, God identifies himself as the one who hardens Pharaoh's heart. So the truth of the matter, friends, is that God in his sovereignty not only knows that Pharaoh's heart would be hardened, but he orchestrates it. God was sovereign over Pharaoh's heart, but not in a way that removes Pharaoh's own personal responsibility and culpability. It was a divine hardening according to a rotten will, not in opposition to a humble disposition. It's not that Pharaoh actually wanted to worship God, because he didn't, but God hardened his heart, and Pharaoh's heart was already Uh, tuned to be hardened against the God of Israel. Friends, God orchestrates Pharaoh's heart to declare to the world that he is the one true God. That is the point of the book of Exodus. That is the point, in particular, of the plagues that happen in Egypt. Every plague and every hardening of Pharaoh's heart is another opportunity for the world to see God's power and might is an opportunity for the world to see that he's a God of justice. He cares for those who are slaves to set them free. 
It's an opportunity for them to see that God is a loyal God, a loyal God to his people. That he's a God who knows and sees and hears and acts. How many times have we heard that in the story so far? And he's a God who's committed to keeping his covenant. So friends, the idea of success here is this. Success isn't seeing results that you want to see. Success is seeing the results that God has determined will take place. Success is for Pharaoh's heart to be hardened. But who wants to go do that? Well, see, friends, success is doing God's will, not getting the responses that you're hoping for. I think sometimes when we're given opportunities to share the gospel, we're disappointed because someone didn't respond. And I understand on a human level, we want to see a response, but do we understand that it is God who does the saving? And we need to be faithful to open our mouths and share the truth of the gospel, but we leave the rest with Him. Success for us is doing God's will, opening our mouths, sharing the gospel, being the body of Christ, letting our lights shine. God is the one who then brings about what He has determined will take place. Friends, it's so helpful for us when we see that. And that is what Moses then has to resign himself to. Yes, he's going to go into a situation where Pharaoh will not believe. And yet that is God's plan. Now, there are some consequences for Pharaoh's rebellion. Notice that too. As we read in the next couple of verses here, we will find out that, that God, in hardening Pharaoh's heart, will, will then result in Pharaoh rebelling against God. And when he refuses to let his people go, God says that he will kill his firstborn son. That's a heavy consequence, but it's an important consequence. Friends, what we must see here is that God is jealous for His people, Israel. And I'd like to, to bore down into this text a little bit more because there's something here that is so important for us. So if you remember when we started the book of Exodus, one of the things that, that we were talking about was the fact that Exodus is so foundational for us to understanding the gospel. And we wouldn't expect it to happen in the book of Exodus, but this is where things begin for us. And as we look at our text today, it's important for us to see this. If we go back to the beginning of the book of Exodus, take your Bibles, if you would, and turn back to, to Exodus chapter 1 and verse 1. And I just want to draw your attention to how the children of Israel are identified in the text. Notice in chapter 1, verse 1. They're called the sons of Israel. And this is referring to the lineage of Jacob, who's then called Israel. Then in chapter 1, verse 7, and verse 9, and verse 13, we have a kind of a shift of, of language here. They're called the people of Israel. Then in chapter 1, verse 22, and chapter 2, verse 11, we move into a new kind of expression. It may be an expression that the, the, the Egyptians use, but they're called the Hebrews. The Hebrew midwives, if you remember, the Hebrew slaves. Then we go back to the people of Israel in chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. And then in chapter 3, verse 7, when God is speaking from the, the burning bush, He identifies them as my people. 
and then the people of Israel in chapter 3, verse 9, and then my people again in chapter 3 and verse 10, and then the children of Israel again in 3, verse 10, and then the people of Israel in chapter 3 and verse 15. So we have these different expressions, but there's, there is some movement going on here, and this movement finds its focal point for us in verse 22 of our text. Look, if you would, again at this passage. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Israel is God's firstborn son. There is this relationship now of father to son that begins to take shape in this unfolding drama. Philip Ryken helps us here. He says, these two verses disclose the very heart of the Exodus. They explain why God cared what happened with the Israelites, why out of all the nations in the world, he went to the trouble of rescuing them out of slavery. This is reiterated in Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. Reflecting back on the Exodus, this is what we find. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt... I called my son. This is God speaking. So God is referring to Israel as his son, his firstborn son. And that should start to get your mind working, right? It should start to get you to to think about what's happening on a theological level here. Friends, God didn't call Moses to be their deliverer because they were a talented, effective, prosperous people. That's not true at all. God called Moses to be their deliverer because he was their father and they were his son. His rescue from slavery was only part of the package. Their rescue from slavery was to make way for restoration to God, that a son and a father would be reunited together again. Let my son go that he may serve or worship me. Friends, we who have been rescued from darkness, from the bondage of our sin, are to rejoice in our salvation, but we're also to embrace the wonderful freedom that we now have in Christ in order to know God more and to worship Him in every way. We are saved from sin to enter into a new relationship as sons, from slavery to sonship. That is the biblical model. Now, I want you to to see that this theme continues in the New Testament, in particular, Matthew's Gospel. And in Matthew's Gospel, here's what we read. We typically see this at the end of of a Christmas story every once in a while. But Matthew chapter 2, in verses 14 through 15, this is what we find. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, that prophet being Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. Now again, your mind starts to think, what is it that Matthew is doing here? Why is he going to Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1? What is he seeking to communicate? See, he's quoting Hosea 11 verse 1, and he is applying it to Jesus. He's saying that Jesus is the true Israel, God's firstborn son. 
And this, of course, is confirmed at the baptism of Jesus, where God says, this is my son whom I love. This is a declaration, profound declaration. But it's not only that, it is also a connection where God is connecting his son Jesus to his son Israel. And friends, the amazing thing is that every person who embraces Christ as Lord and Savior becomes a true child of God. That is what we're told in Paul's letter to the Galatian church, chapter 3 and verse 26. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So this is a a, a term, this is an expression of those who are gods, those who are Christians. We are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You see, the work of Christ is to make slaves into sons. Paul tells us that Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, Jesus is a son, but we're all sons, but he is the firstborn of those brothers, those sons. In other words, he is the preeminent one. So back to what God is saying to Moses in the wilderness, the question God has for Pharaoh is this, to whom do these people belong? And are they slaves or are they sons? And God here is quarreling with Pharaoh and he's saying, if you don't let my son go, I will take away your son. Friends, these verses prepare us in advance for the whole struggle to be reported in chapter 7 through verse 12, where where the plagues are taking place that culminates in the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn son. Friends, here's what we've seen and learned in this section so far. When we finally surrender to the will of God, there will be some challenges that we face, in particular challenges to our total commitment. And there are going to be some obstacles that we have to uh, face and we have to deal with. In Moses' case, it was taking care of that personal responsibility. It was that that issue that he had with his own temperament, so proceeding in a timely fashion. It was caring for his family. It was rightly processing this new information that might have shocked him as far as what his ministry was going to be like. And in our situation, we may be faced with other obstacles that seek to hinder our progress. On the negative side, it could be financial instability or health issues or broken relationships or discouragement, loneliness, abuse, confusion, doubt, weariness, and fear. Those can all be obstacles that are hindering us in our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, in the pursuit of our walk with Him, in our behavior that reflects what He is calling us to do as His children. On the positive side, though, the the things that we're comfortable with can also be obstacles in the way. In other words, we might say, well, I have an opportunity over here, or, or maybe I want to be successful, or, or maybe I happen to be a popular person, so I'm kind of less reliant on what God might think or say. Or maybe I have some financial stability, or maybe I'm just confident about the way I'm living. Those can also be good things, but those can also be obstacles for you giving Christ your total commitment. 
But friends, true commitment will bear fruit in perseverance. And God in His kindness will, will challenge us along the way. So when God calls us, He wants us to start the race, but He also wants us to run the race. And our Christian life is about running the race, but ultimately God wants us to finish the race and to do it in His strength and by His wisdom. And that's why we need to face the challenge, and we all face it, of true commitment. That's the first challenge. Secondly, I want you to notice the challenge of complete obedience. Now, if I'm honest, this is probably one of the most difficult passages in the whole book of Exodus to interpret and to understand. Let's read this together. It says, At the at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him, sought to put him to death. And Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. And it was that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. I mean, if you're just a casual reader, you're coming to this, you're like, what in the world does this have to do with Moses going to Egypt? It just seems like it's thrown in here. It's just inserted and it's just, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, there's so many questions, aren't there? Who is the him that God is seeking to put to death? What are we to make of Zipporah circumcising her son and touching the feet of Moses? What is meant by a bridegroom of blood? What is the point of this whole section? Well, let's try and answer each of those questions, but first I want us to kind of step back and to see how all this fits into the flow of the text. Because I believe that it will help us to think through what is going on and how to interpret the parts. I want you to notice, first of all, there's a flow going on in this text, and the flow has to deal with sons. Notice that the fir at first we find the, the passage talking about God calling Israel his firstborn son. And then, of course, God speaks to Moses about the final plague and the death of Pharaoh's firstborn son. And now, in this encounter, it's all about Moses' firstborn son. Okay, so just understand there is a connection here going on in the text where this theme of, of a firstborn son is uh, really screaming at us. Secondly, there's something here about keeping the covenant. So the question is, what's the problem? Well, it would seem that for Moses to be faithful to his covenant God, that Moses needs to keep his end of the covenant. It's one thing to finally say yes to God about serving him as a deliverer, but now Moses needs to get his spiritual covenantal house in order. According to God's covenant with Abraham, we're told the following two things. First of all, every male among you shall be circumcised. So this was done many years before. This is God's uh, covenant with Abraham that continues on now to the people of God. But the penalty for not keeping the covenant was severe. Any uncircumcised male who was not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people he has broken my covenant. So now that, now that Moses has surrendered himself to God's will, he also now needs to surrender himself and his family 
to God's overarching purposes and covenant. Now, what's so important about circumcision? Why is God being so severe? Well, circumcision was the distinguishing mark of God's people. It was the sign that indicated membership in the covenant community of God's people. And as such, it served as proof of that sonship. Now, we're not told why Gershom had not been circumcised. I mean, you might just say that Moses went into Midian. Certainly, they were God-fearers there, but not in the sense of, of the Jews. And, you know, when in Rome, you do what they do in Rome. In other words, he wasn't carrying out necessarily a Judeo ethic in the context of Midian, and so his son had not been circumcised. And so what we have here then is this need for for, uh, Moses to realize that his son needed to be circumcised. In other words, God's wrath now is upon Moses, even though God has chosen him, to serve him, God's wrath is upon him until that wrath can be appeased. And the only way that it can be appeased is through blood. Now we don't need to have all the specifics of how God is doing all that, but we can imagine that Moses came down with a sickness that was so bad that it threatened his life. And when his wife Zipporah realizes what needs to be done, She circumcises her son, Gershom, we find out his name, which resulted in God leaving Moses alone. So, firstborn son, keeping covenant. And then we have this expression, a very unusual expression, a bridegroom of blood. You know, go to your spouse, husbands, and say, you are my bridegroom of blood. See how well that goes over for you. This is not the language we would typically speak of, but this is language that has meaning. Some think that Zipporah is angry with Moses, that she has to go through what would be considered a a, a vile kind of surgery on her son. And so she's using this in a pejorative way. You're a bridegroom of blood to me. But as I've pursued the commentators, I find myself in agreement that Zipporah is actually acting as a heroine, and that she understood the importance of the need for blood to remove God's wrath from being on her husband Moses. And so she realizes that an atonement of blood was necessary to appease God's wrath. Or to put it differently, Moses was saved from God's wrath by the shed blood of a substitute. And in this case, that substitute would be his son So the expression of bridegroom of blood is actually a term of endearment. It is saying, husband, you are now joined to me together through blood. It talks about her taking the foreskin and putting at his feet. That is likely a euphemism for his genitalia. And there's a transitioning of what took place with his son to be a cleansing tool for Moses that he's no longer under wrath, that he has now been cleansed and he is prepared. So it's one thing to be called, now Moses has to be cleansed. He has to be completely obedient to the covenant that has been made with God. And friends, this text shouts throughout the pages of Scripture 
and into our hearts this morning that every human being who stands under the wrath of God, like Moses, uh, we have failed to keep God's law, and there are uh, we are subject to God's curse against our sin, and the only way to be saved from eternal death is for God's wrath to be averted, turned aside through a, a, an act of blood. And of course, we see that is what Jesus Christ has done for us. He has died on the cross. He has been that atonement for our sins. And friends, I realize we're getting heavy into some theology here, but this is what is happening here with Moses. Not only is he called, but now he needs to be completely obedient. And there was an area where he was not, and God pours his wrath on him until his wife, in her wisdom, is a heroine and provides this blood sacrifice, settles things so that Moses is now ready to serve God fully. And friends, it it speaks to us then of the need, not only to say, I'm going to serve God, but to serve God with a heart that is always looking to be right with God. A heart that is looking to say, my service is not just what happens on the outside, my service also has to do with my personal relationship with Him and making sure that my, my accounts are short. And friends, that's a challenge for us. We can say, I've submitted myself to what God has called me to do. All right, there's true commitment. You've you've faced those obstacles. But now the question is, are you completely obedient? And friends, there's one more challenge for us. I'm calling it the challenge of faithful service. The challenge of faithful service. True commitment, complete obedience, and now the challenge of faithful service. Let's read verses 27 through 31. We'll read it just all the way through, and then I'll make some comments on this. And I hope, I hope that you can see how this is developing. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord uh, with which he had sent him to speak. And Moses told Aaron, uh, sorry, and, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people in Israel and of Israel and spoke to all the all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people and the people believed and they heard the Lord or that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction they bowed their heads and worshiped so what we see in this passage really are two encounters The first encounter is Moses' encounter with Aaron. Remember, God said that, hey, I've already prepared this. I've already been uh, preparing the heart of Aaron to come and to meet you, and he will meet you in the wilderness. And so we find that meeting, and we find out that it was a good meeting. What God said is what took place. And Moses there tells Aaron all that God had said and the signs that, that needed to be done. And so Moses now and Aaron, secondly, meet up with the elders of Israel. That's what we find happening next. And again, it's a good meeting. And Aaron speaks for Moses uh, to the elders and does the signs in the sight of the people, and the people listen and the people believe. It all seems really matter of fact, but there's a reason for it. Now just turn back in your Bibles to chapter 3 and verse 16. Chapter 3 and verse 16. This is what God had told Moses at the burning bush. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, 
The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of, of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will listen to your voice. See, what, what's going on here is we recount this passage from verses 27 through 31 in chapter 4 is this. Everything takes place just as God has promised. What God said would take place has taken place. And that should not be a surprise to us. But friends, often we are surprised. Again, in chapter 3, in verse 17, it says, And I promise that I will do these things. God specifically says to Moses, I promise that this is what's going to happen. And yet, you wonder now, as Moses has gone and done those things, and he is experiencing that God keeps his promises, you wonder whether he's thinking in his mind, what a fool I've been. I spent so much time worrying, so much time concerned, so much time asking questions, even not wanting to do this. And now that I am doing this and God is promised and what God's promise has actually taken place, why was I worrying in the first place? Have you ever had the experience when you needed to talk to someone about something that they did or said that offended you? Or by offended, of course, I mean that their words or actions were a sin against you. Now, you know that God's word says to go and speak to them alone, but you're fearful. And in your heart, you're asking questions. Will they, what will they think of me? Will they think that I'm some kind of a religious prude or I'm spiritually arrogant or I'm easily offended by things? Will they yell at me? Will, will they do something to harm me? Will they spread rumors about me? Will they put something on Facebook about me coming to them and accusing them? Will they turn on me? These are all understandable things, questions we put into our hearts. So you decide to talk to someone about it, to get some wisdom, and they're godly people, and they say, listen, just go and talk to the person. I mean, this is what God is asking you to do. This is what you need to do, and they know this is what you need to do, so go and do it. Follow what God says. But you're just not sure. You're still fearful. So you ask someone else, and then another person. And about a month later, you finally drum up the courage to, to talk to that person. You have been stewing over this. You've been consumed about it for, for just a long time. And you finally go to that person and you share your concern. You share that offense that you believe they did towards you. And they listen to you. And they say, oh man, I remember what I did and what I said. And I'm so, so sorry my intentions were not to cause you harm, but I see that I did. And you are absolutely right. I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? And you walk away from that encounter thinking to yourself, why did I spend so much time worrying? Why did I spend so much time stewing, being consumed with the situation? Why didn't I just do what God calls me to do? Friends, this text is screaming at us. You can trust God even when you're fearful, even when you're worried about your ability, even when it seems 
a daunting call to live your life for Him. God has it all under control. He keeps His promises. What He says will take place. What He promises you can be sure He means to keep. So the challenge of faithful service is our ability to serve God faithfully while believing in His promise. Now, friends, as we bring things to a close, I want to draw your attention to two words, two words that are found in this text. They're found in verse 23 and in verse 31. Notice in verse 23, God tells Moses to say to Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve me. Now, if you remember, as that expression is used by Moses in front of Pharaoh, that word serve has the idea of the people of Israel leaving out of Egypt to go into the wilderness so that they can worship God. So this idea of service has the idea of worship. So this is God's plan. God's plan is always for Him to be glorified, for Him to be adored, and for Him to be worshipped. This is His plan for Israel, it's His plan for us. But now notice how this whole section ends in verse 31. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that He had seen their affliction and bowed their heads and worshipped. They worshipped. Worship, friends, is what God seeks from us in every circumstance. When Israel is in bondage, God expects their worship. When Israel is freed from slavery, He expects their worship. When Israel hears that God sees their affliction, worship is the natural response. When Moses humbly submits to God's call, his life is an act of worship for God. Right now, God is calling all of His children to worship Him. Are you willing to worship Him? Well, that means then you have to worship Him in the midst of your self-quarantining. All the chaos, all the difficulties of that are there for you then to say, God, even in this, I am going to worship you. As you are sheltered in place, are you going to worship Him? And you might be fearful of getting sick and somehow becoming infected with the, uh, the coronavirus. But what God is asking you is to live your life even in light of that possibility in such a way that you're bringing glory to His name because He wants to be on display. And you may be the very life that He uses to testify of who He is, especially in this time. Friends, we have an opportunity to worship Him not just by gathering together and singing songs. Some of you may be wondering, how can I worship Him when I don't know if I'm going to have a job or my finances are being cut or, um, you know, I'm home with my family 24-7. How can I worship Him like that? But friends, in all these situations, God wants your worship. Now friends, hear this. Worship is not so much an activity, but an object. Now, I don't want to necessarily deny the fact that we come to God in forms of worship, but worship is far more about the object of worship than it is about 
the method of worship. And we certainly need to make sure our method of worship conforms to Scripture. But my point that I really want to draw our attention to is to emphasize what we find in Romans, Romans chapter, chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2. You know this passage so well, but I want you to hear what it says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, literally your, your, your service of worship. You see the connection there? Service and worship. You are to worship with your lives, with your behavior, with your choices, with your attitude. That's all what God is calling you to do. So which is your spiritual worship? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So as you and I are surrendered to His will, He is calling us then to live our lives in such a way that we face the challenges that are before us. Yes, the challenge of true commitment, and there's going to be lots of obstacles that are going to be tests for us to prove the will of God. And he, he, the challenge of complete obedience is there. We need to be con- not be conformed to this world, but be conformed and transformed uh, by the Word in our hearts. And there's this challenge of faithful service that whatever God wants, He is going to accomplish through us. Friends, this is a challenge for us, that in our surrender to His will, that we are worshiping Him. That's the goal. The goal is always for God to be glorified, to be worshipped. Friends, all of these challenges that Moses faces, all the challenges that we face, are opportunities for us. They're wrestling matches for us to get to the place where we can say, God, I know you because of what you've revealed in your word, and I'm going to trust you, and I want to do my best to live for you. You know, we sing a, a lot of songs, maybe not too many songs in our church, songs of aspiration. You know, Lord, I give you my heart, I give you my soul. And we're saying, here are things that we are doing. And they're not saying things that we know, confident that we can do 100% of the time. There are songs that saying, this is my desire. I want to do these things. There are songs of aspiration. And friends, I'm so thankful we don't have a God who simply communicates aspirations that he has about his character for us. We can be certain about who God is. But God calls us to pursue him. And in the context of what we are going through, He still wants worship. He still wants us to see Him as the I am who I am. And Moses now has gone to Egypt. He's spoken the words that God wants him to speak. He's performed the signs with Aaron for the elders of Israel. And God is being glorified by those elders, by His people. Friends, may we see our time right now as a challenge. Yes, it's a challenge with many obstacles, but it's a time for us in that challenge to be reflecting who God is, to be worshiping Him even in our distress and our circumstances. And that fleshes out through attitude, through actions, through interaction, through prayer, through encouragement, through support.
He is worthy of our praise, no matter the circumstances, and He's a God who keeps His promises. And we're so privileged to have Him as our Lord and Savior. Would you pray with me now as we close things out? Lord, You are a great God. We humble ourselves before You. We, we are in awe of Your goodness and kindness. And Lord, all of us this morning are wrestling with the difficulties of living life right now at this point in time. And Lord, if we are surrendered to you, it is a challenge. It's a challenge. There's a battle going on in our hearts. And the battle is for our commitment to you, for our obedience to you, for our faithful service um, to you. Help us, Lord, in the midst of all those things, to see you aright, to see you as seated on your throne, unshaken by what is happening here, fully in control, and having given us certainties and promises that we can hold on to as we live our lives for your glory. Our ideas, our goals, our agendas, Lord, may not be your goals and agendas. Help us, Lord, to do your will. Help us, Lord, to pray, uh, Lord, to you faithfully. Lord, help us to seek to serve one another in a way that would honor you. But ultimately, Lord, may we worship you during this time of struggle and difficulty. And may the life of Moses, what he went through here, be a challenge for us so that we can truly and faithfully honor you and testify of your goodness. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen.